May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. We've seen some very spectacular royal processions over the last uh, 18 months or so. I did not expect to be glued to those processions after the Queen's funeral and uh, after the King's coronation. Um, but there I was, totally transfixed, watching the whole lot. Well, I saw some stunning horses in that procession. Um, the Windsor Greys there were um, pulling the carriages. The Irish Drafts, those are the ones that have the household cavalry sitting on them. Um, there was a goat. Did you see the goat? The mascot of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. It has a rank. I think the highest it can get is Lance Corporal. Um, not bad for a goat. But as far as I remember, there was not a single one of those military or royal personnel riding a donkey. Not one. Well, this morning, we're thinking about this royal procession, which is of far greater significance than anything that has ever taken place in London. The entry of Jesus of Nazareth um, into Jerusalem less than a week before he was crucified. And on that occasion, the donkey was the perfect mode of transport. Now, for the next three months, that is really leading up to Easter, we're going to be uh, together reading through uh, part of Matthew's Gospel. Um, the section really that starts with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and uh, we'll skip a little bit, inevitably we'll have to, um, but we'll eventually let Matthew guide us as well through the events of Easter, um, crucifixion, and resurrection as well, which hopefully explains why we're focusing on a text we would usually have on Palm Sunday, on Epiphany. I'll try and bring in Epiphany later. That's the visit of the three, the three magi to Jesus when he was a baby. So, uh, so that we're on the Palm Sunday text, um, but slightly on the wrong Sunday, never mind. Well, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, is one of only a handful of events that is actually mentioned by all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which means, I reason, that God, that, that God must consider it absolutely critical to our understanding of Jesus, our understanding of his mission, his, uh, his person, his kingdom, and his heartbeat. So I pray my prayer, sincere prayer this morning, is that we will see him, all of us, at the start of a new year, more clearly, as a result of our thinking, and not just for the sake of understanding it correctly, I want us to see him more clearly, I want to see him more clearly, to, uh, to, in order to welcome him more fully into this uh, heart of mine and uh, of yours, with more love and with more joy, with more obedience, and with more worship. So, the plan, my plan anyway, um, I hope you'll go with me, is to just briefly review the story. I'm aware that some of you will be brand new to the story. Others of you will know it very well and will have done for years. Now, once we're all clear then on what's going on, so I'll review the story, we're then going to train the spotlight on Jesus himself. And uh, as we do that, we're going to see a couple of things, a twin truth that Jesus reveals about himself here in this extraordinary story. So let's just review what happened going over it. Basically, Jesus has been training his disciples for the last few weeks as they've been traveling towards Jerusalem, the looming destination. Looming because, to the disciples' horror, Jesus has predicted on three occasions 
that he will be killed in Jerusalem. But by chapter 21, verse 1, they are getting very, very close to the city. It's Passover time, which means Jerusalem is full of, of, of pilgrims for the religious festival. They arrive at a village, probably a couple of miles from Jerusalem. It's called Bethphage, on the Mount of Olives, um, just a, a couple of miles at most from the city proper. But already the road is crowded with pilgrims. Now the first thing that Matthew, as he writes this account, wants us to know about the event is just how meticulously Jesus has planned it. So verses 2 and 3, Andrea read there how he instructs two of his disciples to go ahead into the village of Bethphage and to pick up a donkey and the donkey's colt. Now, it probably isn't a case of Jesus' supernatural foreknowledge. There are cases of that, plenty of them in the Gospels. It's probably not that. It's pro the point is that he's made a deliberate arrangement ahead of time and arranged with a resident of that village to have the adult donkey and its colt tied there. The colt, that's a, I, as I understand it, in my kind of basic equine knowledge, that's basically a teenager. Is that right? The sort of a teenage animal, the colt. So we've got this mother and teenage donkey um, that they're going to be there. And Jesus has also arranged this kind of password so that the, the disciples are supposed to give in case they're accused of nicking the donkeys. So they're supposed to say, verse 3, the Lord needs them and will send them right away. So Jesus must be very determined to ride into Jerusalem and uh, on a donkey. This must be absolutely his fixed uh, plan. And of course it is his fixed plan for a very good reason, which Matthew explains in verse 4. There it says, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and then he quotes from uh, the prophet, from Zechariah, say to the daughter of Zion, that is to Jerusalem, says, say, see, your king comes to you gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus would fulfill these words from the prophet Zechariah. Now, like the other prophets, Zechariah foresaw the arrival of the Messiah into Jerusalem uh, to claim his throne. The Messiah, is that a word you're familiar with or a, a concept you're familiar with? The Messiah, it's a Hebrew word. The Greek word is, is the Christ. That's the title in Greek or in English if we translate it. The anointed one. That's what it means, the anointed king. He... The, the Messiah, he is the saviour king who God has promised since the very early chapters of the Bible. Messiah will come to, well, to redeem humanity and to rule the universe forever, establishing his rule from Jerusalem. Well, the prophet Zechariah, his particular contribution, among others, is to stress that this king, Messiah, will come on a donkey and not on a war horse. The prophecy is very explicit about that. It says the king will come on the donkey and he will actually banish the war horses, it says in the very next verse of Zechariah. He'll banish the war horses to establish a kingdom deliberately of peace, gentleness. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Now, you might know that earlier in the Gospels, 
Um, Jesus keeps his claim to be Messiah under wraps a little bit. Well, now as his death approaches, he throws off the veil and he makes careful preparations to fulfill this prophecy in the sight of everybody, deliberately, unmistakably, declaring himself to be Messiah. Well, Jesus already has a group of followers, been following him along the roads, yet now, what is described, look at verse 8 there, a very large crowd is with him, a very large crowd is on the, the, the biggest crowd, literally it says, a big, big crowd. They become very excited. So the, the disciples have already taken, their, given their clothing to make a saddle for this donkey, and now the crowd start taking their clothes off, laying their clothes on the ground and laying tree branches on the ground as well. We know from the other Gospels they were waving palm branches, hence the, name, the word Palm Sunday describing this, this um, event. Elated shouts go up. Um, and the slogans they say leave us in no doubt that they understand to some extent just what's happening, the significance of the event. He is, they say, he is the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Which is significant because God had promised great King David a thousand years earlier that the Messiah would be born into his family. So son of David, they're saying, yes, you're the Messiah. Or, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's another quotation from a psalm, Psalm 118. And again, it's a psalm of the victory of God's king, ultimately, Messiah. Uh, and, and verse 11, again, they put it, verse 11, they say, this is Jesus, the prophet. It's unclear exactly what's in their mind when they say that, but there's a good chance they're referring to another prophecy from Deuteronomy chapter 18 this time about the identity of the prophet um, who will, is Messiah. Um, they're identifying Jesus in all those ways. So the crowd is euphoric. Messiah is coming. But what does it mean to them? That's the, that's the question. What does it mean to them that Messiah is coming? Well, it is very hard to be sure about that. Um, the way Matthew tells it, um, this crowd seems to have traveled with Jesus. So the crowd, Matthew distinctly has two groups of people. He has the crowd traveling with Jesus. In other words, that the crowd traveling with Jesus is not the Jerusalem public. It's the Jerusalem public that within a few days is shouting crucify, crucify. It's probably not this crowd of enthusiasts who are coming along with Jesus. At least that's the way Matthew tells it. They are genuinely excited for, about Jesus and, and, and uh, enthusiastic and, and, and elated about him. But readers of Matthew's gospel know very well by now that even Jesus' closest disciples didn't understand what he was about to do in Jerusalem. They didn't think that he could possibly die. How could the Messiah die? They didn't get that. So it's very unlikely that the large crowd could imagine a crucified Messiah either. It's more likely they thought they were about to witness Jesus wielding some serious divine power and uh, to basically to their political advantage. It's probably what they thought, something like that. Was he I don't know, going to blast out the Romans in some extraordinary way and restore Jerusalem to its former glory? Something like that. We don't know for sure what they thought. But what we do know is that this crowd were a lot more positive about Jesus 
than the public of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem public, look at their reaction, verse 10. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asks, who is this? The crowd answers, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jerusalem is agitated, it's alarmed, it's fearful, because what could be more dangerous to the flourishing of this city, the fragile flourishing of Jerusalem under the Roman occupation than, a, than a, a crowd of enthusiastic people claiming that this guy from Galilee, Jesus, a northerner, is the Messiah. Very dangerous. I mean, Jesus is obviously not the Messiah, they think. How, this is lethal to their, to their interests. The Roman authorities wouldn't stand for it, they think. So uh, they're very disturbed. Um, you know, a rogue Messiah and his entourage could easily produce a violent Roman backlash or might lead the Roman authorities to taking a more hands-on approach, God forbid, they thought, a more hands-on approach to governing Jerusalem may mean that they would lose their power. Um, I was reading this morning at the 9 o'clock service the Epiphany reading, which is Matthew chapter 2. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, um, there is another time when all Jerusalem is stirred. That is exactly Matthew's phrase. It's a different word in the Greek, but it's the same in English translation. All Jerusalem was stirred. You know where, what, when that was? It was when the Magi arrived and said, where is the one who is to be born king? All Jerusalem is stirred. It's an early hint. In literary terms, it's a sort of a foreshake of what will come when Jerusalem finally rejects Messiah. And here, it's starting to play out. It'll be no surprise now Jesus arrives that in the coming weeks we will see it um, that there will be a clash between Jesus and the authorities. We'll see that over the next few weeks. By the way, next week's the all-age service and the following week we've got a guest preacher so you'll have to wait for the next bit of Matthew for three weeks but I'm sure you can do that. But I want to pause now. I want to, we need to pause. That's a review of the event. Let's just pause now on the sight of Jesus sitting on that donkey I don't know how you picture it sitting there in the light of the prophecy what do you see funny isn't it I close my eyes to imagine it but what do we see we see a twin truth two things at the same time first of all we see his gentleness the gentleness of Jesus or the word could be translated the humility of Jesus or the meekness of Jesus that's what we see and that's what the donkey expresses so absolutely brilliantly this this man Jesus has not come to Jerusalem to conquer by any human means of power so a war horse well what could be a more powerful symbol of human strength than that a donkey, a donkey. Now just imagine if there was a particularly enterprising, um, upwardly mobile and quite crafty donkey um, around who decided that it was going to sneak its way into the royal procession. Can you imagine? Oh, look, there it is. <laughs> Credit to my son Samuel for photoshopping in the donkey, and I believe our cat is also sitting under the... Um, under the royal carriage, that, that bit, I didn't ask him to do that bit. 
Well, it's interesting, we laugh, isn't it? Because it would be a joke. I mean, you know, it would be it, you're there among the Windsor Greys and the Irish draft horses, these enormous war horses. It's a parody of dignity, a parody of power. Donkeys, well, we love them. I love donkeys. We love them. The Donkey Sanctuary in Sidmouth, Devon. I, I did some research. It is, in fact, not the richest charity in the United Kingdom. That's, a, so that's an urban myth that goes around. It's not. I did the research. The Wellcome Trust is followed by the church commissioners of the Church of England. You wouldn't know that. But anyway, it's doing quite well, though. These, these donkeys here are, um, are quite well catered for in their happy retirement. Because our hearts go out to these poor donkeys, these gentle, sweet donkeys that must be so tired after a lifetime of carrying the children up the beach, down the beach, these poor little donkeys. Hearts melt at the meekness and the vulnerability of the donkey. Oh. But no one sees them as creatures of power, command, mastery. The donkey is a perfect emblem of Jesus' heartbeat. Those distinctive, long, large ears of that donkey that Jesus rides, they tell us, they're making a mockery, that he rejects the world and its ways in favour of gentleness and peace. Or more precisely, if we think about the donkey in terms of that day in Jerusalem, He's saying, I have not come to Jerusalem to administer violence. In fact, he'll turn out to be the victim of violence. He has not come to take the lives of others. No, he's going to give his life for others. He has not come to hold the sins of humanity against us, but to offer himself in order to gain justification, forgiveness, that Jesus' gentleness stands out in this event. But then second, uh, as we look at the donkey rider, his majesty is there too, unmistakably, his rule. So we mustn't lose sight of that as we emphasize the gentleness. gentleness the gentleness of Jesus doesn't take away from the sheer sovereign might that he possesses and is about to exercise. It... It, gentleness is simply the way in which he exercises that might. So the truth is that he does arrive in Jerusalem to rule. He will be crowned in that city, won't he? Except it won't be a crown of gold, it will be a crown of thorns that he receives upon his head. And <laughs> that's only, of course, the precursor. He will also be crowned in heaven do you remember the, how the Matthew's Gospel ends? Perhaps some of you do. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He comes to rule. There's no avoiding that. He will claim his triumph in the city of Jerusalem. And he'll claim it even as he is crucified, let alone when he is raised. He will establish his worldwide rule. From Jerusalem, A worldwide kingdom will be established from there that very week as he is crucified, raised and sends his disciples out to the ends of the earth to teach the peoples of the world to obey him. He will overcome everybody who stands against him 
over those next few days. His will will prevail at every point and he will judge the city, as we will see over the next few days. He will weigh its peoples, he will sift its institutions and he will pass sentence upon it. So the donkey is an emblem of Jesus' attitude, his approach, his heart. But actually the donkey does not symbolize the power he possesses, which is absolute. He comes in gentleness, not with the swagger of this world's power, but we mustn't think, we mustn't make the mistake his power is greater than all the world's forces combined. And I'm talking about the hard forces of this world, the military forces, the economic forces. Jesus possesses more authority than all of them put together. He rules, and he comes as Messiah to rule. And that alerts, by the way, of course, everybody. It should alert us all. Um, everybody who actually who won't welcome him, which Jerusalem wouldn't by and large, um, that he, he, will, he will rule us. He will rule us. His rule is unavoidable. Our destiny ultimately is in his hands. And yet, of course, the gentleness also encourages us to welcome him into our hearts and lives. You very broken, um, guilty, ashamed, afraid, very empty, confused. Well, He's not going to come to you and bash you. No, it's like when you've got a tender bit on your, you know, your body somewhere and the, the, the doctor, hopefully, <laughs> doesn't come in hard. The nurse doesn't sort of jab a thing. No, gentle. That's how he'll treat me. That's how he'll treat you. But he'll do it from a position of absolute, utter, sheer, unavoidable authority. Now, I want to stress these two things together. At the end, I want, I want, it's very, very important that we hold both together, the gentleness and the rule. But the, the, a, the reason to stress that point is that so often one reality gets forgotten and, uh, while we focus on the other, and, and Jesus gets distorted as a result in our minds. So, for example, on the one hand, it's possible to focus on the gentleness at the expense of the rule. We focus so much on the gentleness of Jesus that we imagine that he's kind of indulgent. You know, that he doesn't mind too much if we don't turn away from our sin. No, he summons us to repent of our sin. With, uh, and, and, he, and he does so from the place of highest rule imaginable. In fact, beyond our imagination. So we mustn't forget the rule. But on the other hand... Um, a focus can be placed so much on the rule of Jesus that we forget his gentleness. We concentrate on the rule and we mistake it for harshness. And we think that he's kind of harsh and nasty. But he's not. Oh, he rushes towards our weakness and even to our sin and says to us, let me lift you up and give you the power to repent and turn and unless, see, unless we know that he rules us with gentleness, with compassion, with humility, we'll never love him, we'll never trust him, we'll only fear him. We have to hold them both together. The devil is perfectly happy for us to fixate on one or the other, at the, one at the expense of the other. The devil's delighted if we can do that, because if we can focus entirely on the gentleness of Jesus, 
He'll keep us from ever repenting. If we can only focus on the authority of Jesus, he'll keep us from trusting. The devil's perfectly happy with that. Either way, he succeeds. And the thing is, our temperaments and our personalities, our education, the era we were born in, can easily incline us to overlook one or the other. So Jesus' rule, authority, it appeals to some generations more than to others, to the more regimented type of personality, while Jesus' gentleness um, suits another generation better um, and more easygoing people in their temperament. Well, the crowd that accompanied Jesus that day, they did see the rule of Messiah and they were excited about it. Did they see the gentleness, the meekness, the humility? Probably not. Hence their confusion as Jesus went towards his death. I don't know if you've learned to see Jesus in all his fullness. It takes um, repeated reminders in our own heart. To hold the twin truth steady. It's a good New Year reset for us at the beginning of January. To hold together the two realities that Jesus reveals for us as he enters Jerusalem riding on that donkey. The gentleness and the rule. So that royal procession comes to us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit now. Jesus, we welcome him as he really is. Let the gentleness melt your heart, your anger. Your, it soothe your shame, speak to your fear, and then let his rule summon you, reform you, inspire you. Me too. Let's pray. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would reveal Jesus to us, not just in the written word of Scripture, but through that written word, by the living power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would help us to hold these two glorious realities together, the gentleness and the rule. And that Jesus, the great donkey rider, that you now would come among us as you are. Reform, renew, inspire, encourage, tend, lift, and do all those things which we so desperately need. Because we ask it in the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus.